welcome to the latest episode of the Substation podcast. My name is Emma Burns. And my name is Sam Edwards. And this is the third in our series around security of supply. First episode in the series covered what security of supply is, some of the key concepts. The second section looked at the market mechanisms that help facilitate and provide security of supply. And in this episode, we want to look ahead at how capacity markets and security supply mechanisms need to change in light of net zero. We're probably not going to be touching on the geopolitical angle of security of supply in, in the in the future world, um, just because it's it's really real right now and it's all happening and whatever we say is probably going to be wrong. So I guess to recap the concepts from the last couple of episodes, so we first defined what security of supply is. So security of supply is the industry providing appropriate system capabilities such as generation, production or transmission and storage capacity to maintain normal supply to consumers. And we kind of covered that from different angles in the first episode. So we thought about it from the perspective of overall generation adequacy. So ensuring that there's enough generation to meet demand. We covered it from the perspective of sort of transmission connection and ensuring that there's enough network capacity to meet demand and then also on a on a local distribution network level that you know the energy is fl- flowing to customers. The third bit was diversity and risk so making sure that you're not too exposed to any one type of energy or that you've got enough backup to cover the known risks that you're thinking about um, that, that may be inherent in whatever choice of energy architecture you have decided upon and with those things in mind then we considered the different mechanisms for ensuring security of supply we talked about price controls and ensuring incentives on network operators are appropriate and then on the kind of overall generation adequacy side of things we talked about different market mechanisms for ensuring that we have appropriate levels of capacity however those mechanisms may need to change in a net zero world so I suppose that both the challenges that we face in terms of the the energy system, but also the challenges for investors may change as we as we move to this world of of net zero, greater renewables, and less reliance on fossil fuels. But Emma, why is net zero different to to now for security of supply? Well, I suppose you can think about these in terms of sort of system wide or systemic issues and challenges, and then also kind of investor and generator specific challenges. So broadly, we are looking at a system where we've massively decarbonized electricity generation. We have much more electrification of heat. We've got much more demand from customers and associated with this new system of of lower thermal generation and increased levels of renewable generation, there are associated challenges in terms of system operability. So things like ensuring that there are appropriate levels of inertia and reactive power and all that good geeky stuff that we, we like to talk about. So the, the, the world is sort of fundamentally changing in terms of our energy production and consumption. And it's moving from one where we had reliable, large thermal generators to one where we've got a lot of smaller, asynchronous, renewable generators that may be spread across the country so because it's all so because there's so many more renewables partly that the the energy itself is more uncertain and when it comes we're going to get a lot of it at certain times and less at others 
So that's a new risk. Exactly. That's part of it. So the whole you know, intermittency question. The other part of it is that those non-traditional energy sources bring about a number of challenges in terms of managing the system more generally. So they make the system less stable. Exactly. Yeah. You could you could put it like that. Yeah. <laughs> Less stable might be a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit pejorative, but historically, like the the system operator relied on these big power stations that that had a lot of like so spinning mass. And when we're talking about inertia, there was a kind of inbuilt safety cushion in those big power stations, which you don't get with um, kind of modern re- or you don't get with current renewables. You may get it in the future. You might say less stable. I might say more challenging. Yeah, exactly. The other thing there is that you mentioned that it'd be more spread out so that the system itself is going to be bigger, further away in areas it's never been before. And generally, I suppose, more just going on at those lower voltage networks. So, you know, we've seen in the last 10 years an increasing proportion of generating capacity connecting at those distribution networks at the lower levels rather than directly into the transmission network. Which means, you know, National Grid, the electricity system operator doesn't have as much visibility and access to those assets. But also then there's the demand side part of this. So with increasing people with EVs and electrification of heat, etc., there's more and micro generation more generally. There's more action effectively happening at the distribution level in terms of demand as well that also needs to be managed on top of all of this. So these kind of sound like they are known risks, the known knowns to butcher Donald Rumsfeld. Um, <laughs> they're, they're kind of like the traditional engineering challenges spread over a new mix of mm. organising different types of generation. But are there any kind of new risks, new phenomena that we might expect? Yeah, I guess those risks are the kind of the engineering risks, I suppose, aren't they? They're Yeah, they're what we can sort of forecast in some sense but more generally there are climate related risks so i mean i suppose the fact that the climate is both changing but also the fact that we are more reliant on the climate and the weather for our energy sources so there's the idea of a in or in germany they've come up with this idea of the, the dunkelflauter or dark dark doldrum which is describing the kind of security of supply firm capacity issues because there may be mm-hmm. periods where little energy is generated by wind and solar because it's dark and still which in that case we're going to have to be running something else because the demand is likely to be high yeah and which is kind of historically when we've thought about capacity issues or generation capacity issues we've thought about a relatively short period so it's generally been targeted at a, a few hours where demand is very high, maybe a generator falls over, you know, there's a kind of a shorter term issue. But the Dunkel-Flauter concept is getting at a longer term disturbance. A week or more, like a weather system that hangs around for a a week, basically. And and they are observable patterns in in the weather that you can, in in a winter, you may find that there's just a week where the wind speeds are very low and you have consecutive days that, you know, overnight, the sun's not been shining in the middle of the day so maybe we don't have enough stored we've run out of storage within the first couple of days if we just concentrated on short-term storage and this is where people are very interested in long duration energy storage um but how frequent these are like they 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 definitely happen they're not 
things that they're not mythical beasts that we've never seen. They're definitely something that needs to be planned in um, into the system. Are, are there any sort of new risks that might be associated with the changing? As we've seen, you know, climate change has brought things like extreme weather events, like storms. So, I mean, extreme weather events bringing kind of hotter and colder temperatures, you know, that might lead to issues related to generator operability. So you have things like freezing fog that might interfere with gas turbines and, and other generators. And that's happened in GB before as well, where gas-fired generators have failed to start up because it was too cold. Same in Ireland, yeah. And because the gas generation in these countries are sort of optimized or set up to be able to cope with our, our weather and our climate. And if we kind of go outside the bands of normal then we start to see issues. And it happens on the other direction as well, is that the, the yeah. cooling water could be too hot for it to operate at all or at the right efficiency. Mm. So that's mm. a risk for nuclear power stations in the future. I guess there's lots of people experiencing storms. And was it Eunice and Franklin? And mm-hmm. there must have been another one, but I can't remember the name of it. So that, that's more like an interruption issue. The, the question is there is, how do, you, how do you plan for that? Do you have more backup generators at a local level or do you reinforce the the networks underground them that's that's obviously very expensive either having spare hit running in parallel or having it running underground and that's kind of a separate angle to energy security than capacity adequacy so it doesn't matter how much generation you have if the wires themselves aren't able to flow to, to consumers then you know those consumers don't have security of supply the intervention needed there is will be different and and of course in those situations you're also approaching wind speeds that might be cut out regimes for for wind farms because there's a again like the temperature for thermal power stations there's a wind speed envelope in which the the turbine is most efficient and when it goes over that it's in danger of damaging itself so they will feather or put the brakes on in order to basically spin slower uh, in the wind and avoid uh, catching fire or falling over um, so you could you can actually see that you know if there were lots of storms or a significant change to wind speeds that could either damage or result in very short-term drops in power output that weren't otherwise expected uh, so they're the systemic sort of system-wide issues related to climate and, and the wider landscape but then there's also issues in terms of investment and ensuring that you know generation um, and other capacity is being built reliably uh, and to function reliably so the term cannibalization is sometimes used here to describe the impact of changing fundamentals on on the price so specifically it's it's where say if i wanted to invest in a new wind farm um because the marginal cost of that wind farm to run it doesn't cost me anything the wind is free it's actually the capital cost up front that's the the big cost so Away a lot of away the pricing system works is that you'll uh, you want to be paid whatever the marginal the you know the last generator is to meet demand. Um, we there's a, basically it's kind of agreed on that we all want to roughly pay whatever it is for that final generator. That's the opportunity cost um, to produce power. So if the next wind farm on the system reduces the marginal cost by maybe increasing the efficiency of the last generator on the system because we're moving further down the merit order or by pushing a fueled generator off the system entirely actually means that when that when this new 
generator is added, the wholesale price received is lower. Uh, and that's greater the more renewables you have trending closer and closer to zero or whatever it is that wind farms think that they could get away with charging, um, which is less, likely to be less than the marginal cost of a gas-fired power station. And the marginal cost of a gas-fired power station is important because that is our main source of flexibility currently. Yes. yes. Uh, and, and so if you're an, an investor and the um, it looks like every time someone adds a new wind farm, the wholesale power price goes down, that makes me nervous about investing in new wind farms because it means that not only will my investment reduce the wholesale power price I receive, but also mm -hmm. the next person who connects next year who has the benefit of a year's worth of learning and maybe the next turbine model that's either bigger or more efficient, therefore they can invest in more, they're actually going to hurt my investment because mm -hmm. their new uh, bigger turbine is going to lower the price even more than mine did. And that's true for new investors and new capacity, but also existing generators, right? Once they see the wholesale price reduce yeah. too much, they may decide to exit the market. Yeah, and, and this is where this is where we run into the issue that we talked about in the first, second episode on energy only markets is that without some sort of kind of price certainty, then it's difficult to invest. The The traditional way that you would get price certainty in an energy only market is by contracting with the end user of the energy and, and agreeing some sort of deal. However, it's difficult to contract with an end user for energy, often because they're not large enough or that they don't have a good enough credit rating we've fallen back on a system where the government acts as that kind of buyer or provider of revenue certainty and that's where the cfd mechanism comes in and so this is one of the important things of you know providing enough energy is making sure that the people who can who want to build it are suitably remunerated for their services do you mean the cfd there or the capacity market well both so the, the capacity market is a slightly different but related issue but the cfd is about energy buying enough energy the pasty market has a similar we're talking about similar effects because a lot of those generators who would traditionally provide security can't recover enough money because they're not running as much in the energy market so they need some other form of energy payment and, and the capacity market stick uh, stands up there for those who can't uh work under the cfd and i guess this is the this is the point well currently but also even more so in the net zero world is that we need mechanisms that both procure low carbon or zero carbon generation on the one hand, also procure a reliable firm capacity on the other. So you, you need both renewable support scheme like the contract for difference, as well as a security supply scheme like the capacity market, or something that does maybe both at once. Yeah, and that's, these are the issues for the future is, is um, our energy only markets suitable? Our, our current one certainly isn't partly because so many layers have been added onto it. But the question is if it, if, if it was ever capable uh, mm -hmm. of, of doing it uh, at all. So we, we know that the challenges are going to be, there's going to be lots of energy from low marginal cost generators in certain periods of the time. And then in much fewer periods of the time, we're going to be running those firm or flexible generators, but because they their costs are spread over far fewer hours, they're going to be very expensive. Customers don't like, and governments don't like, uncertain and volatile prices. People quite like certain and flat prices. Because <laughs> at its simplest, that's what we could be facing, right? Like loads of periods, loads of time when it's just low carbon, zero carbon, 
or no low carbon, zero priced or negatively priced actions or prices. And then a couple of periods where you need to bring on these more expensive, flexible gas power generators. And because they've not been running all year, they need to price all of that in. So it's either the price shoot up from zero or close to zero or minus to incredibly high prices from from one half hour to the next yeah or uh, and you end up with um, there will be those periods you know where the you know once every couple of years where there's just a doldrum and within the first couple of days we run out of all of the storage and then all that's left is that we have to run the least efficient energy providers the ones who sit there and provide only flexibility but they're not designed to sit there and run for days on end and we end up with you know days worth of thousands of pounds per megawatt hour as opposed to what would normally be you know months of very very low prices and that is likely to be unacceptable so and i suppose more generally to add to the generator or investor picture is an increasingly complex landscape of different revenue streams so we've talked about energy and capacity but we've also talked about these changing system operability issues whereby new services will need to be procured to ensure that we have things like appropriate levels of inertia and reactive power which makes investing in energy more complicated because you're not just dealing with one or two revenue streams you're dealing with you know four five six seven that you need to kind of manage and stack together which yeah makes investing in in the energy system more complicated and layering on top of that the like you said, that things are going to be further away and the networks are going to be more important than ever, which means that the location of your asset is also going to be very important. And obviously, we talked with Ed about the locational pricing issue, but that's it's not just you know whether or not there's a locational price for power. There's also the network charges, the connection costs, uh, the probability of being constrained. Um, and as we talked um, in the, the DNO session, whether or not there's any DNO services that might be needed. Not even then getting into what happens if National Grid upgrades that line and removes that revenue halfway through my life, and and and, and or a factory opens nearby or closes or or something. So the challenges in terms of the system and in terms of investing in the system. What are the challenges? What does this mean for ensuring security of supply going forward? And I suppose specifically for the mechanisms for securing securing supply going forward you know how do we procure energy in a in a net zero world so i think we can agree that we don't think the current scheme is the best solution Mm -hmm. yes yeah so then we have to ask ourselves what what are we trying to what are we trying to buy and and what, what do we want the outcomes to be do we want to buy energy do we want to buy capacity or do we do we want to buy resilience all, all these aspects of security of supply are, are on the table is there some sort of co-optimized solution that, that buys all of these together which is kind of the dream right i mean i suppose we've historically hoped to achieve that optimal solution through different markets procuring different things at different times and maybe run by different actors so you know we've got different people in charge of the energy market the capacity market the ancillary services market so I suppose one future that we might see is more alignment between all of those things. Yeah. So um, is it? I think Grid have said that they would like to put as much as possible in the day ahead, or in terms of the 
kind of long-term position. So they're moving, they've moved a lot of their stuff away from, you know, month ahead procurement um, or seasonal procurement day ahead. So they're ancillary services, balancing services. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is there a space where in the future there's a co-optimized locational day ahead energy inertia short circuit level reactive power and reserve and response market that's all co-optimized together that algorithm sounds interesting (laughs) computers can do loads right (laughs) i mean yeah i mean if they've got all day to solve it (laughs) yeah well they've probably got a couple of hours to solve it so it makes it maybe doable um probably not right now And that's in terms of the short-term requirement. So we're, we're kind of moving towards getting more at the day-ahead stage. But in terms of security of supply, we need to think longer term. Yeah, and that, that's where the kind of the nexus between investment and planning is, you know, and government uh, targets is really important because government kind of knows what it wants within within certain bounds and investors know what they want, which is a return on the investment and the i think a lot of the stuff that we've talked about here is very capital cost driven so we're talking about wind farms solar farms batteries networks and maybe other long duration storage things they they so a lot of the cost of investing in those is kind of upfront big bang i pay up front and recover over the life of my asset compared to say a traditional combined cycle gas turbine where a lot of the cost is actually the turbine is relatively cheap for energy infrastructure it's just that you've got to it runs so much you consume huge quantities of gas so as long as that you always have a, a decent spread on the gas you'll you'll make your money back and and that's a very different kind of investment landscape because it's when you don't have a fuel there's not much to hedge against um especially if it's not a liquid, you know, if it's not a liquid traded fuel like hydrogen. Because everything is so capital dominated, the cost of capital is going to be a big, important driver. Taking lessons from the CFD, then we know that um, one of the biggest things that can be done to reduce cost to consumers is by reducing that cost of capital, which means giving certainty to investors. So is that something we've learned from the contract for difference? Because we think that that mechanism is sort of supported investor certainty brought down things like hurdle rates yeah yeah so that's one of the good things about it the bad things about it is that it insulates those projects from operational decisions and locational decisions that might mean that overall there's an increase in cost to consumers because those wind farms get paid no matter what they do so there's no incentive for them to dispatch efficiently or reduced impact is that insulation inherent in the fact that we have a subsidy for renewable generation or is that specific to the design of the subsidy that we have currently? Because I suppose I'm thinking we could design a mechanism that didn't that did expose assets a bit more to yeah, exactly. what's going on in real time. So it's, it's definitely a factor of the current design. Mm-hmm. There must be a way of exposing those generators to that to that signal. On the flip side of that coin, there's generators who really want to be exposed to that signal because they'll run 
in those periods where pro- they want scarcity and they want volatility because they're in those couple last couple of hours um, to be there, and they're fairly happy for those to exist as long as the government, the regulator is willing to let those exist. And as long that they know that they're going to exist, right? Because that was always one of the main drivers behind having a capacity market in the first place is on the one hand, as you said, you might not trust that the regulator or government are happy for those high prices to, to be there because, as you mentioned, they're kind of politically unpalatable. But on the other hand, you need to make sure that those price pr- spikes do actually happen and that they can actually be captured by by those flexible generators when they're needed. Yeah, so this this is the the challenge of, of market design is, is how far do you want to go down those axes? You have the full market exposure, which comes with its own risks. You know, you're going to increase the cost of capital. How versus as much insulation as possible, where you can lower the cost of capital, but you might be increasing the system operation costs. And there must be a sweet spot in between those two points where we can get the best of having a system that's run as efficiently as possible while also lowering the cost of capital by ensuring that a fair rate of return. Because this is it, right? Yeah, it's the balance of the interests of consumers who want to pay as little as possible effectively and the interests of investors who want to be able to yeah. invest and build off the, the back of the revenues they're receiving. But I, I think the, the there's a clear opportunity here for those investors because we've got to do lots to ensure security of supply it's relatively clear at this point that wind and solar are going to be the cheapest ways of adding bulk megawatt hours onto the system and if we're increasing demand to decarbonize electricity uh, to, to decarbonize heat and transport we're going to need lots of bulk megawatt hours so i think it's fairly certain that the wind and solar will come on which leads to those other things that we talked about we're gonna have to cope with dunkel flouters we're gonna have to cope with short-term variations in wind speeds we're gonna have to make the system stable in a different way so there's this huge requirement for all of that new stuff but under the current market system it's only going to run infrequently or in or in ancillary services which are procured at very short time scales and so those investors are going to want either prices to be very spiky and to be given certainty that they will be allowed to spike, or we're going to have to give them some revenue certainty somehow, which may be in the form of the capacity market mechanism. Like some other people have said that you could have things like all-encompassing auctions. So you could have an auction that procures both security and supply and low carbon objectives at the same time. We could rejig the capacity market or the CFD to cover both in either direction or you could do away with a CFD like structure and have more of a less of a centralized more of a decentralized obligation system where you are instead of placing the obligation on the providers you're providing on suppliers or customers to go and find a counterparty for an obligation you've now placed on them. Um, so that could be like a supplier has to present a certain amount of certificates to show that they bought enough firm capacity for the winter. And then it's up to them to find that in a way that best suits them. Because I suppose one of the challenges that we face now with capacity markets is they tend to be kind of centrally driven. You know, the rules are set centrally, the volumes are procured centrally, and also for quite long time frames. So maybe moving to something that's more decentralized would be more 
Yeah, possibly. I mean, it depends on what your objective is, really. If your if your objective is to kind of run a most efficient system that keeps costs as low as possible for consumers and doesn't really have to change an awful lot, then you might want to kind of strip back as much centralization as possible because that way you can allow the market to innovate and find the right solution that keeps this kind of steady state going. But I would posit also that that's probably not where we want to be in the next five to 10 years. We want to be just continually growing and is you want, you therefore want that system to kind of hit some, some clear targets. You want it to be as simple as possible and you want it to be kind of deliver the right amount of certainty to ensure that those targets are met. So I say reducing the amount of counterparties is probably best in that situation. And you just have to take it on the chin that there will probably, you know, you, you won't get everything right in any sort of central system, but you will at least have stand a better chance of hitting the targets you set yourself. So centralized is better than decentralized in your mind? In, in a world in which the overarching imperative is to build a new thing, um, where 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 the you know the the line is clear we have to get over there then we want to make getting over there and hitting that target as simple and certain as possible if we're not necessarily clear on what the target is and if we don't know or 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 the overriding objective is to be as low cost as possible then we want to introduce as many parties as possible into the equation because some of them in that mix will find the right solution and then they will grow and spread their ideas or their business model and we will achieve that objective mm. and then i guess what about this idea of combining low carbon generation support and firm capacity support so i mean there's been some discussion of this i suppose for a few years where you could have well there's a spectrum of different options here right so at the moment in gb we have one set of auctions for for renewable generation through the CFD and they're sort of entirely separate really and you know run administered etc completely differently to the auctions that are run for the capacity market and I guess there's different options in terms of how you could better align those two things so I suppose in one extreme you'd have a single auction for both um, that would co-optimize with one auction algorithm something very clever and whizzy both both volumes and I guess in between that, you could maybe better align kind of targets and also when you're having the auctions. Hmm. So which would you? What would prefer? I go for? I mean, I'm always a little bit nervous about too many cooks in the kitchen. I suppose at a fundamental <laughs> level. And I think I've seen the costs of that. Um, and while you assume that those cooks are talking to each other, or those participants in the market or administrators of different markets are talking to each other and aligning. That's not often the case. So even if it makes a more complicated solution overall, having that solution done in the same organization and as part of the same process feels better to me than having the kind of level of disparity that we have between different mechanisms currently. I can definitely feel the, uh, <laughs> the ennui from the Kind of, I, I, you may be referring to say the electricity market reform process there. Maybe yes. <laughs> we won't live through it. It was well. It's 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 the electricity market reform process, but also I suppose the outcomes of it. So where we've ended up. So taking 
the British capacity market, as an example, we have, I don't even, I can't even count how many different organizations involved in administering it, right? You've got government, you've got national grid delivery body, you've got national grid system operator, you've got Ofgem, you've got the electricity market reform settlement body, and that's LCCC. the low carbon contracts company, the electricity settlements company, so I've counted seven, and they're just sort of central bodies, right? That's before you even involve the market and different participants. Um, and that's always felt quite busy to me. And I think when it's always felt like there's things can fall between the stools, I suppose, between the different parties and, and overall responsibility for the scheme isn't necessarily always clear. So that's the kind of market, how we might change some of the markets to deal with net zero. But I guess one of the things is we're talking about a what, 30 year horizon here. The technologies we've got now may not be the technologies we have in the future. And one of the things that I think we will probably nail in the next 30 years, and if we don't, I'll be very upset, is <laughs> demand side management. Do do you, where where does future tech fit into this? Like, are there any technologies that might be on the horizon that um, that are either game changing or that we could see would be game changing if we just nudge things in the mm. market a little bit? I mean, I guess before we get onto really exciting tech on the demand side side of things, there's sort of the traditional demand side response side of it. So where you're kind of shaving peaks and moving energy around, and you know, using demand side as a virtual power plant. But there's also energy efficiency, which we've not talked about yet, but is kind of a key demand side measure that ideally would just overall reduce our energy consumption. It's much more difficult to um, incentivize that. It's, you know, you're talking about going into people's homes and a very kind of decentralized mechanism. Um, and it, there was a one point chat about including energy efficiency as part of the capacity market which didn't really take off. It's the issue of baselining, isn't it? There's an issue of baselining. There's an issue of, again, I think this idea that ultimately, you know, in some ways it's easier to build a power station than it is to go into 26 million homes and insulate them and ensure the windows are closed and, and all the rest. And it should be, theoretically, it should just be in your interest to make your factory more efficient, lighting better or, or, or whatnot. I mean, I always think that there is, it's, it's always an under appreciated under utilized part of demand oh sorry energy policy is managing demand because the every spend especially with gas prices so high right now you know a pound spent on insulation is a couple of pounds saved on gas prices yeah it's just such a it's a tougher nut to crack isn't it in terms of the complexity and the fact that you have to actually deal with humans and people <laughs> rather than yeah. you know just big turbines it's difficult to go into people's homes, but I, mm. I think that if you, especially in this day and age, if you package it the right way, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's it's. I think people will be surprised by how willing people are to make sacrifices this winter. I've really enjoyed turning off my heating in the last week and saying I'm doing this for the, for the war effort. That's definitely been a driver for my behaviours, and I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that there is a, a collective will right now, and mm -hmm. maybe there could be somebody should somebody should take advantage of it mm -hmm. um, because it is a good investment as well. But 
other things. There could be um, nuclear, new nuclear power stations, small modular reactors. We might find that, you know, whatever the new nuclear reactor designs that are on the table have now gone to in front of the regulatory board. However, that's like a four to five year process. We may find that if Rolls-Royce can deliver on, or whoever, <laughs> other reactor manufacturers are available, um, can deliver on their, you know, promised factory lines production lines for these things that the costs might come down and, and we can find nuclear a efficient option and this is really the, the really exciting thing about new technologies right like well the exciting but challenging thing because on the one hand that we could find this you know new source of reliable energy that helps our security supply issues but on the other hand we might need new mechanisms for support you know, the old market mechanisms may not be suitable anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of debate at first because the CFD was designed for CCUS, the carbon capture uses mm. and storage at the beginning. But actually, when you look at the fueled, they're not as much, it's difficult when you're competing against the gas turbine and how exactly do you reward a CFD to a unit that's flexible, that the, the CFD doesn't quite work as it currently exists for carbon capture uses and storage tech, which is probably... A very key enabler for net zero if, if we can prove that we can cost effectively capture carbon off the back of uh, thermal uh, processes and store it somewhere <laughs> in whatever form. And that'd be kind of devastating, right? Like if we design our market now and lock ourselves into a certain market design that precludes certain innovative technologies down the line. Yeah. So, whatever, I mean, flexibility, as we've definitely, I think come to appreciate as part of security of supply is, is always useful even in governance and legislation um i one final challenge or that i think is important to talk about in net zero and security of supply is grid defection so by this i mean that customers generators disconnect from the total system and they run multiple small independent systems because as costs for renewables fall and for firming technology to fall, there might come a point where certain customers will just say, well, actually, there's no point in me remaining connected to the total system because I can actually just buy these panels, this storage device, this smart hub, and completely divorce myself from the wider energy system. Which is quite a lovely romantic notion, isn't it? Being entirely off-grid... Living, living in some sort of cabin somewhere, living off the land, you know, it sounds great, doesn't it? But it creates issues for the system more generally. Yeah, I mean, the the reason we have these big integrated systems is because they're lower cost for everybody. Mm, mm. And when you look at it in the whole, there's a network effect. Like in the, if you think about Twitter, Facebook, social media, mm -hmm. the more people use it, the more people are going to come in and use it and the lower the cost is for everybody. Mm -hmm. The same thing works for electricity system because so many people use it or the gas system or, or any other energy system. Because so many people use it, you can have these huge assets that are reliable, provide all sorts of different services and you can spread the cost over a large group of people. Well, different people are using it at different times as well, right? Like mm. within a microgrid, you're just consuming your own energy. Whereas with a shared, you know, national grid, you're kind of offsetting your consumption with other people's consumption. And there's, yeah, as you say, network effects or shared capacity benefits there. Yeah, exactly. And um, transmitting that energy is mm -hmm. so much more efficient when the, when the voltage is higher. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, nobody lives locally to an offshore wind farm. 
Um, although if someone built a town offshore integrated into oh that would be so cool it's like an integrated <laughs> town are you thinking like what's what's that under the sea um atlantis well yeah but yeah you know maybe an offshore colony that's just un, you know part of the foundations and, and the pylons of the of the offshore wind turbines and, and you can build yeah so sorry <clears throat> <laughs> i just rewatched little mermaid as an option so i'm i'm, I'm with you i'm i'm from bought into the vision yeah but well offshore wind is going to be one of the cheapest ways of producing energy but nobody lives locally to an offshore wind farm mm-hmm. um so we're always going to need something like a transmission system to get the power off and then mm-hmm. who do we spread that cost around if all of the major industry groups have disconnected and say all of the i don't know people in the countryside have disconnected the, the grid defection has then made us all slightly poorer perhaps or at least those the rest of us left on the transmission system and you i mean you'd hope that the people who were trying to defect from the grid would see those costs and be exposed to them and you know they, they wouldn't necessarily benefit from being by themselves other than again they've got this romantic notion that they're self-sufficient etc yeah it is this so it is expensive to be self-sufficient um because there's actually uh quite a lot of say storage or firming capacity will be required to back up a small panel or a small turbine on their own um which again leads me to probably think that it's difficult to completely defect and it would only be for people who really valued the disconnection. But I think that there's a genuine danger there because we're talking about new technologies. We don't know what the next battery system will be like and perhaps the next leap in battery chemistry or will result in cost-efficient multiple-day lithium cycles or perhaps vanadium redox becomes more economic at, at smaller scales and and actually you, you can have those systems and at that point you've probably <laughs> signed the death knell of the i mean maybe that's more of a, a problem for energy economists economists like me than it is <laughs> in reality um but there's definitely challenges uh, surrounding the idea of grid defection i suppose the other side of this is i mean there's increasing opportunities as well right so we've mentioned new technology we've mentioned sort of demand side flexibility so whereas capacity markets and security supply mechanisms have maybe been more geared towards traditional thermal capacity, in future we might see an increasing proportion of yeah non-traditional new low-carbon generation providing those services. Yeah, it's an exciting, brave new world will be this net zero system. And there's definitely going to be challenges ahead. And I think the thing, so things to watch out for, end of March, April, National Grid will be releasing their future market design for net zero which we did a a page turn on but we also know that Ofgem and Bayes have commissioned work on looking at things like future market design they're looking at the CFD they're looking at the capacity market I mean that's the thing right we've kind of in this series I suppose focused on capacity markets mostly but we need to look at it in the round right we need to take a holistic look across energy capacity ancillary services and then other things like consumer fairness and, and affordability. And you yeah. need to do it all at once, really, don't you? And, and the, the again, we simply wouldn't touch geopolitical issues, but they are also important considerations for energy security and should be included mm-hmm. in whatever policies are decided. Kind of fair to say we don't know what the future will look like yet in terms of security supply mechanisms. We kind of know what the challenges are. 
but there's a number of kind of moving pieces that need to change and fit together. Yeah, I, I think the future is to be created. We know we know the kind of rough technical parameters of the problem we have to solve. It's the commercial, legal frameworks of that and how best to achieve that. It's because it's a, we know what we want to achieve. We just don't know how to achieve it yet. And we know the challenges involved and we're, just, we're having that debate. So the, the debate is going on now is, is what's the best way of achieving that. We all know where we want to get to, which is a low carbon secure system by 2050. Do we achieve that by reducing the role of the market and creating investor certainty and having more centralization? focusing on that the idea that the cost of capital is the most important factor in determining the cost to consumer mm-hmm. or do we want to turn and say actually because the system is going to be so complex and hard to manage that actually we want to make those explicit and we want to put those risks on the parties best able to manage them which are the generators so we should you know create the ability for prices to spike and be volatile and and reflect all the costs of the system even though that might make investing harder and slightly more expensive actually we'll get a more efficient system out of it at the end of the day and i think that those are the poles of the debate and then where does you know security of supply fits into that because we want that system that works well on the day but we also want it to have the stuff that's there that needs to be there so we've got to make sure that it's investable mm-hmm. customers want a secure stable supply so does that necessarily fit with a, a very complicated locational system or is it best fit with a centralised low cost of capital system? It's probably somewhere in between. And all of the above we want to achieve at a price that's affordable as well for customers. So it's simple, yeah. Simple. That's security supply in net zero world. Yeah. We figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> case closed <laughs> it won't be we'll I, i'm sure we'll always come back and touch on this like it's it's so hard to divorce security of supply from the market or anything that we're likely to touch on in, in energy well that's the thing for me this topic is so interesting because it it fundamentally is energy like i don't care about my energy unless it's secure unless when i turn the lights on my my lights are turning on and, you know as as a consumer this is this is central to everything all the other bits kind of support this, but this is for me the the overall objective. Yeah, it's um, achieve. I think looking back, actually, ten years and say, and and me being able to say, look, the technical parameters are relatively well known, and we have the tools to do it. It's amazing we've got this far. Who knows what we'll be in the next ten years? So that was the third and probably final episode of Security of Supply. Um, we may change our mind. Um, You've been listening to Tom Edwards and Emma Burns uh, on the Substation podcast. If you want to talk to us, you can email us at the Substation podcast at gmail.com or at Substation podcast on Twitter. Feel free to, to have a chat with us. We're nice, cool people um, and looking for to talk to cool people about anything.